Okay, so now I'm going to uh, basically go through questions uh, that were prepared for each of these members. Um, at the end of uh, them answering these questions, we will have uh, questions from you guys if you have any uh, in mind. Uh, but this is the time to try and formulate what those, those questions might be. We're going to start with Ben. Um, ben, uh, your job is to record the cleanest dialogue possible. Uh, the entire process of capturing dialogue for film and television begins with you. You're the first link in the chain. Does that ever give you pause? Well, not really pause. It, it's sort of what we look for in every job. But uh, at the beginning of every job, before they start shooting, um, I'm always asking a lot of questions, or I try to get my questions into the producers and the directors early and try to get in as much pre-production setup as possible. Like, scouting locations, if there is any music being there for the recording of it to know what we have and make sure that it's packaged correctly to deliver it to our actors. Um, but no, I, I mean, I actually love my job, so I never get paused. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the thing, but I, I, do, I do find, especially these days, and we, I was just talking about this at lunch, um, it, it is harder to convince producers where the value is. And to get me or somebody who does what I do in on the whole process before we begin filming, talking with the costume designers, going over each wardrobe um, article, and um, the locations, talking to the production designer, making sure that all the corridors, if they don't, if they have hard ceilings, making sure they're at nine, nine foot two inches as opposed to eight feet. I find that nine foot two seems to work for booming. Although our microphones have gotten a little longer, so. Maybe nine, five, but you know, an experienced production designer will know this, or, or whoever's building a set, but a lot of times they don't know all of this. So as soon as you can start getting to this, and if somebody can actually pay you for your time ahead of the time, which they, they don't want to do, you can save them. This is what they listen to. Other than having a better you know, filmic experience, you can actually save them some money, which is what they mainly want to hear about, right? Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I start. Okay. Um, second question. How do the television shooting schedules impact your ability to get microphones where you need them? Um, well, television is definitely more fast-paced. Um, although, when I worked primarily network television shows, the pace was much faster, very fast. We would have a call time at 7 a.m. On The Office, we would be filming at 30 seconds later. Normally, we'd start with talking heads. It was all set up, and they would, they would call it in. We were in, and we were rolling already. Uh, lately, I've been doing all these subscriber like, um, shows, like HBO or Netflix or Amazon. And those are, we're only shooting 10 episodes. They treat them a little bit more like a movie. So we have a bit more time to prepare in the mornings and to make sure that all the miking gets done correctly and to our liking. Um, and we radio mic so much nowadays. Whereas 20 years ago, we didn't radio mic everybody. Even on The Office, I didn't radio mic everybody. You know, I only, I, I definitely radio mic the main guy because he, diegetically in the story, he would have been the guy asking for a radio mic if we, were, we only had two. He was like, I get one. Um, uh, but, you know, so we have time to, to sort of set up for this stuff. Um, so I've been working on Silicon Valley, so we get all the actors in, and we have a little bit more time. That one, they have found a little bit of value for me coming in earlier to work with their sets, because a lot of that show is about these big, expansive, static shots of these tech world 
kind of thing. In the production designer, there is excellent. I think they're beautiful shots, beautiful locations and, and sets. Um, but there is consideration there and there is communication, although a lot of it not paid. We just know each other. We've done the show a long enough time, so we talk about it during the, the off times. I um, have one last yeah. question. Uh, you've mixed situation comedies, serious television dramas and features, which provided the greatest challenges in getting the best audio possible. Um, well, the series... Or do they all? <laughs> oh, they, they all do, but... Um, I mean, the movies, it's all about logistics and just being able to get you and your kit into the place where it needs to be at the right time. Um, it really is about how portable your equipment is, how the quality of it, the infallibility of it. Um, I mean, that's half the battle, is just getting there and being able to turn over. Uh, where it's on television, everything's a little bit made for you. You're usually working in locations that are a little bit more set up and, and friendly, um, so you don't have to worry about that much. It's just more the speed of the way we shoot, um, and that's a big challenge. So if something goes wrong, you just have to speak up immediately. It's like, that takes no good. His radio mic fell down. It's in his shorts, you know, so we, we got to dig the lavalier out and stick it back on, and then we can go again. But if you hesitate for a second, we've moved on. Um, so, you know, and there's no shame in saying, the mic fell, you know, it's a piece of tape. It's, you know, it's a physical world. Um, so I know some people will not say something, um, or, you know, if we had it on the boom and the radio mic was good for half of it, I mean, a lot of times the radio mic's good for the close game or the quiet thing, and the boom can't really quite get in there, and I like to run up, I, I, we double mic actors a lot now, which we didn't used to have to do, um, but I find that that actually gives us, uh, well, I think that it gives our folks down the line the option to be able to make that choice and to see what makes a better performance. I can assure you that's true. Thank you very much. Todd, I did notice you shaking your head in agreement to a lot of this stuff, so there's a, lot of there's a lot of common. It is, it starts in the very beginning, like what you were saying, and I, and I just poked my head in before when they were doing the carts in, the, in CIS, mm -hmm. and they were talking about um, location scouting and how so many producers don't want to include sound in on location scouting. And for me, that's almost a deal breaker if, if I can. I mean, I do have a little bit of a luxury because the bigger films have bigger budgets, so you can get in there. But even those bigger films don't, you know, sometimes they don't want you there for whatever the reason is, whether it's money, whether it's mm -hmm. somebody was saying, you know, maybe you're going to cause problems or whatever. Do you, do you feel that, um, this is not one of the questions, but do you feel that, um, that the perspective of location scouts is like 99% the visual, and they don't care about the traffic or the airport in the in the forest. It is mostly visual. It's of course it's visual, but when we go there, then we're taking the, our side of it and bringing that side up. And not only does it give you you know information as to what you're going to be dealing with acoustics, sound noise, sound maintenance, and all of that. You also it's also a great time to congeal with the crew, you know, because at that point, they are on the bus, you know, you have all of the other heads of departments that are on the bus working together, and you're the one department that's not there. So again, anytime you come late to the party, it's, you're, you know, you're coming from behind. I wonder sometimes if, if, if it's a matter, too, of the, the producers or whatever don't want to know about your problems. Mm 
<laughs> you want to hope not, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see that. You kind of have to leave that open. Okay, for I'm going to ask you the formal questions yes, here. Yes, go ahead. Okay, um, in a large budget feature, how early are you brought on, and how do you prepare once you've been hired? You sort of semi-answered right. it, but there's more to it. It's different for every film. On any musical, I've done I think ten musicals. Musicals I'm brought in very early. You know, Greatest Showman, West Side Story. All of them, I'm a couple months ahead of time. I'm there for the pre-records, um, and there are a lot of things that I like to do for musicals that do require that time. Um, and I'll do things like testing microphones, lavaliers with actors. So, for instance, on West Side Story, we had all the actors in dance rehearsals, so I set up my sound cart in the dance rehearsals, and I would take six lavaliers, you know, like a DPA, a Shure, uh, a Sankin, and I would line them up on a grip bar, all at the same same height. And I would have the actor come into it and put the grip bar right here, so I have six mics right there. And then I would put a 416, which is my go-to mic here, and I would have them read their lines and sing and just record them. And then later on, I would go back and listen to them and what I found, it's truly amazing, is how different lavalier microphones react with different people. And ones that you thought might work well, I mean, I used to use Sankins, you know, almost all the time. And with, you know, no regard to who I was using them on. And after I started doing these, these tests a couple years ago, I realized that lavaliers sound very different on different people. And by being able to do this, you know, gave me the opportunity for not only myself, but for post, when they carry it through, when they want to go back and match things, now we've kind of worked through which ones are going to sound best on them. Mm -hmm. So I try to get in there as early as I can. It's always a fight with production. You know, they obviously, you know, they're trying to save money. Mm -hmm. And you have to prove, you know, what your what worth is, is and what yeah. the value is mm -hmm. of going in there early. Before I, before I ask the, the next question, I'll, I just personally I want to ask a question, and that is, how often do you interact with the re-recording mixer that's at the end of the process? That's because right. we barely ever know the pr production right. mixers, and they, I think, quite often don't know who we are. And um, in, in the long run, there might be great um, laudits on both sides. On the other hand, there might be a lot of cursing on both sides. No, I, I've, I've always thought this to be one of the big tragedies in our business is that there is no communication beforehand. This movie, I'm working with you know Andy Nelson and Gary Rydstrom. We've had multiple conversations beforehand, and this, but this is more of an anomaly than than most films. Yeah. Early on, the JFK, The Doors, those movies with Oliver Stone, we all interacted. But I would say probably 80% of the movies, they don't even have post-production people hired at the time that we're filming. Right. So there really can be no communication, right. Right. you know. And I make as many notes as I can, you know, to help. Yeah, we and never get the notes. <laughs> and I, I know. And I and I try to record a tremendous amount of ambiences. I, I I run different microphones, like when I'm doing, you know, shots in the streets, even in, in locations. I'll put different microphones in different places since we have so many tracks now, and you can just kind of throw them out, like. You know, That's all very true. Areas. Unfortunately, uh, the schedule down the line. Is, is prohibitive about them, you know, as, assessing. assessing. Is how much does that actually get? You well, know, we're going to let to be used. down the line. We're going to get Anna yeah, involved in that one. And I have one other question, actually, that will go that way. <laughs> like on this film, West Side Story, 
my mix was crucial for for Stephen. If if I missed a line or if something was off, it was like you know we'd have to do it. He in his mind it was like we, it wasn't it wasn't you know we didn't get it even though it, it's on an ISO track or whatever, you know. Um, and and so that mix track is so vital for him. But then I also hear of people that don't really do you know full mix tracks and kind of open up everything and let it go out. And and I've always wondered how much they how much they really do use the mix track later on. Uh, obviously, it helps through temp mixing and all of that. Um, and how yeah, important how important there's a lot is of times that we there, we curse yeah. about that too because, because I, I grew up in the you know the first in the mono mixer you know mono nagra mm -hmm. and then the stereo nagra and everything was a mix mm -hmm. you know because you didn't get anything else yeah no that uh, down, for the final it does not get used no no no, no. Uh, it, it it works for dailies so that he knows that he has what he needs right. and maybe for a temp you know because that's what they'll import into the avid to use as their uh, to cut with, but once it gets to me, it's not used again. Is it ever helpful for you, for instance, like when I'm using wirelesses in a room, I'll always have a, a, big, a wide boom mic way oh, out. Yeah. Just to, to capture mm -hmm. the bounce oh, of the, the bounce yeah, of the room. That, that takes the curse off the radio mic. But I'm actually. adding a certain amount of it, you know, because obviously you'll go back in and you'll choose whatever amount you want. Yes. So, so knowing how much I use on, so when I transition from a boom to a wireless to a boom to a wireless, like we do all the time now, um, that information of coming and going, does that, it means? No, no, no because no. I have, I, I, oh, now we're jumping around, but I have those days. Yeah, yeah, no, so when I get everything, my job, of course, is to prepare everything so that the mixer can do the best job he can do. And I need to... Choose. Yeah, yeah, but I, I choose. But also, I, I uh, if you have a boom like that, yes, of course, I'll use it. But I'm not going to use the information about how much was used in the mix. Right. In the mix Even if it's do. only like, so it may be like the wa actor walked in, we're able to get them on the boom on the closer stuff, and then they walk back again, and you have to pick them up on the wire. So, like your your you know knowledge of like when to go to what. I mean, you have to listen to every track, and I do. Uh, I do. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yes. No, 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 no. I, we go through everything. We go right. through everything. But the actual mix that you did, that, that is more for dailies and right. for, for the temple. Well, this brings up an interesting thing because when we, I started with the Mono Mix 2 and we're making a mix. But now that we're using Isotrack, so every single microphone that we're, that we're using is being recorded dry, clean, on its own track. Um, and for a while, I have to say, on the office, I was doing a two-channel mix. And that's so that I could judge more microphones. It actually took the fun out of mixing because I had to listen to two things in two different ears as opposed to some beautiful mix. Um, but at least I knew what I was turning in was right. It was, it was done to what I thought was OK, and it, it could go along. Um, so in a way, I started using the mix not as anything that would really be used in a final, but as quality control, you know, just making sure it was done right. Because when you're doing a mono mix, sometimes you're not listening to your plan B microphone, which was the hero. You went with it and you just went on because you knew it was there. But it's not exactly right. I, I, sorry, I have uh, sorry. Uh, two other questions, but they'll be very short answers, as you've indicated sure. already. Um, you've done some huge uh, action features, some likely with lots of VFX and green screen. What are the challenges of that kind of recording? And in those situations, are you basically recording an ADR guide? I haven't done that many, 
big green screen. Most of the things that I do um, are more kind of big dialogue or music oriented, but any of the big green screen stuff that we've done, I actually feel like unless they have some mechanical stuff going on, it enables you to get the microphone right in on them. It's almost like a, a it's like a, you know, carte blanche to just like right. jump in the screen, yeah. you know? So in, in some ways it makes your life easier because you can get a boom right into the green screen. Unfortunately, in a lot of green screen, there is a lot of mechanical right. stuff going on in the background. Right, and if there's mechanicals, then, then you're, you're yeah. captive to, yeah. you know, to the environment. Okay, great. Okay, Matt. How's it going? I have a couple of questions here. Um, what is turned over to you initially? So all these guys have these incredibly cool lives where they're out on location and they have these really awesome, unique situations that they get to put microphones in places that you would never think of. And I don't have any context for any of that. I get uh, a full set of all of the production recordings while wearing cargo shorts in an office in Century City. Like, my life is listening to how cool their lives are. Um, and it's pretty awesome. Where were you at two, where, where were you at two o'clock in the morning yesterday? Uh, yeah, asleep. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> uh, so I, my main goal is getting a full, complete set of all of the polyphonic... Uh, uh, sound rolls that the production is generating. And that includes all of the green screen stuff. And I will admit, yeah, you can get microphones all over that because they're just going to VFX them out anyway. Right? Uh, uh, so uh, from there, uh, it's a lot of trial and error with the uh, picture department. Uh, I am one of the few people that does have, end up having a great line of communication from both production to re-recording at the end, I, I end up being the the one Quite constant. Often the, the assistant is the the crucial factor in all of this communication. Uh, my job is two things: organization and communication, and it's about making sure that everyone understands uh, where the bodies are hidden and uh, when they need them. I've got them ready, and to make sure everyone gets paid on time. Um, but it's, uh, it's a lot of uh, getting these nested files from, uh, from the production mixture. And I got to say, I started out in, when it was DATs and DVDRs and handwritten sound reports, and now it's all wonderfully digital. And I think that that provides a wonderful uh, sense of security and stability and safety when uh, you can go straight to a... Excel document and find what the source time code was on the day of, because that sort of information is incredibly crucial for me being able to make her life very easy. And that is building out the dialogue. That's well, that kind of- That was actually my next question. What do you do to prepare the tracks for the dialogue? Anyway? Once I have taken all of the nested polyphonic files and brought them into Pro Tools and cracked them out into a series of mono, uh, audio files so that now each individual channel gets its own unique identifier, its own uh, track in the AAFs. Uh, it's about making sure that everything lines up and it's in sync. There's a lot of trial and error with the picture department getting their EDLs to source the correct information so that every piece of dialogue that you hear in every movie you've ever heard 
is uh, by somebody like me going in and made sure that every subsequent ISO track is frame accurate to what it is in the cut. It's uh, tedious, it's boring, but it is incredibly important because uh, sync is God. And uh, after I'm done making sure that every piece of anything, whether it's a P effect or a, an ambience or... P effect is a production effect? Yeah, somebody, uh, somebody you know, throws a set of keys on a table during a take. We're going to make sure that that gets special treatment. Uh, and it's about making sure that when the dialogue editorial team sits down on day one, they've got everything they need. Uh, to make choices because I just uh, I serve a lot of ingredients to Anna and she makes a wonderful meal out of all of it. That's a great description. Um, I, I think you. And these guys are the farmers. They, they, they grow the food. I go to Ralph's. She cooks it. All right. Um, I, I think you pretty much answered. But in case it's something different, what do you do with the dialogue tracks delivered in the AAF? So uh, basically, the, the main work that I do with AAF Dialogue is building it out and making sure that we have a session, a Pro Tools session, where everything that the, is in the AAF are on their tracks. And then every other channel would be built underneath it. So uh, in one visual, simple way, you can see which character is on which mic. One of the very first projects I ever worked on was Reno 911 Miami. And that movie didn't have a script. And every scene has 12 people. And every person had their own love. And so the AAFs that we usually get might have three or four channels of dialogue. Every turnover for Reno had 12 tracks of dialogue. And you just had to go through and mute 11 tracks. It was uh, it was special, but we it was it it was the only <laughs> it was the only way to get things done, and and you find that on every project, there uh, is some past experience that you've had that will make your current challenges that much easier. Uh, we're really grateful down our end of you going through and weeding that out. And I, I'm grateful to everyone that comes before me and everyone who makes me look good after. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next one is Anna. Um, I have a few questions here. Um, what does your assistant editor deliver to you? And this is like uh, an interpretation uh, of what he, he said. <laughs> no, but I don't think I really need to add anything to that. That is, um, it takes nowadays that everything is recorded on, uh, digitally on Divas and stuff like that with a lot of tracks and and we are using, or they are using uh, ISO mics on everybody. A lot, nowadays the editing dialogue is a lot of time going through and choosing what channels to use. And so whatever Smokey can do to um, organize that, obviously would make my job much quicker. But you have to add a couple of weeks, on a feature, a couple of weeks of going through and weeding out through all the microphones uh, before you can even start editing. What is your workflow after you've received everything from the... the I've got two, a, a couple of questions. What is your workflow and how do you address those tracks? What do you do with them? Mm -hmm. And also, what is your decision-making process vis-a-vis -vis, uh, material that is not acceptable and you need to ADR? 
how do how do the producer or the not the producer but the director and the picture editor react to your 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 requests for ADR? Um, well, so, so first of all, just going through and listening to because you always have a mix track and then you have your booms and then you have all the ISO mics and obviously you want to use the booms as much as you humanly can, uh, but especially working on action movies and stuff, obviously there's too many mechanical sounds in the rooms and you can't do that, especially dealing with car movies, which for some reason I've done a lot. Uh, and um, so you do need the microphones. And it's just a matter of, of really cleaning up and just using, so if you have eight tracks of, of actors, you just go through and you clean it all up so that you only have the pieces that you need from each person. And then, um, you just start laying it out, and, and obviously most directors do not want to ADR. ADR is the evil word that nobody wants to hear, but uh, depending on the project, obviously it's absolutely necessary to do so. And the tools that we have today, though, make it so that we have to do less than we used to. I am not. Do you, uh, just uh, yeah. on that statement, mm -hmm. um, one of the questions was, do you do very much isotoping or noise reduction of your tracks to get them as clean as possible before they come to the mixer? No, I do not. I am of the old school that I don't think it's right for the dialogue. The dialogue editor should be editing and leaving because if I sit, I mean, there are definitely times when I do that, um, but rather than doing wholesale, no noising type stuff, I will use isotope to draw out very specific noises that poke through, um, just so that we can avoid ADRing things. I mean, say you have some, what's a good example? Oh, oh, work uh, on, um, some movie, there were seagulls in the background. And so instead of, you can just draw out the seagull, you know, so you don't have to loop the whole thing. But I, as a dialogue and editor, would do not like to know noise stuff because what I hear in my headphones, in my cutting room, is not gonna play back the same on a dub stage with the tool and that is somebody like Gary who's really, really good at doing that. I don't wanna, change the quality of the tracks before they go to him. And a lot of people think that for temps, yes, if you want to know noise stuff, but I think the dialogue editor should edit, and build fills and smooth it out more uh, old school to not tweak with the tracks too much. And if I have to, I always obviously keep the original. Do you do one uh, character per track, or do you break it out normally by angle, depending on? I'm more of an angle, but but all mixers that I always talk to the mixer as early as possible to see what they would like from me because I truly believe my job is to make the mixer's job as easy as possible so that they can. It's not for me to decide. I wish they all had that philosophy. I, can I know, you. I know, I know. But no, I, I mean, as an editor, that truly is your job. You don't dictate because your stuff is going to the next person. And they're the ones that are going to deal with your stuff. So it's not for you to dictate how things are going to be. You talk to the mixer and do whatever helps them the best. A quick question about ADR, if, yeah. if I could. Yeah. Um, do you... 
how do you or what do you do to convince someone that it's necessary to ADR something that they don't want to? <laughs> I mean, let's face it, we all know the airplane in the, in the yeah, cowboy yeah. western, yeah. you know what I mean? But, but sometimes it, they, they literally say, well, I don't, know, I don't hear what you're talking about. That happens a lot, yeah. yeah. And it, I, I mean, with, if you've done it for a long time, maybe they'll listen to you a little more. <laughs> maybe. But um, I mean, part of talk, part of all of us is yeah. is the education of the exactly. picture editor, education of the the director uh, or, or even producer for that matter. I mean, a, a big part of what we do is having to educate them because yeah. quite often they'll make poor value decisions mm -hmm. uh, b based on stuff they just simply don't know. If they can't hear it, I, I think the best way to uh, convince somebody to do something is this. They know the dialogue. They read the script, they wrote the script, they've heard it for a million years. My first step is I don't ever want to read the script before I start working on a movie because my first pass is always writing down whatever I don't understand as a first-time listener. I will only be a first-time viewer listener one time uh, so I can be the audience then. And if there's anything that I don't understand or then I'll give it to them and say it that way. And also, if people don't hear, understand the dialogue, you're gonna have to pull back on music, you're gonna have to pull back on your effects, and that way you're not gonna get the mix that you want if people don't understand the dialogue. So, yes, it might seem okay to you when you hear it in the Avid, but once it's in the final mix and you wanna have a full soundscape with everything that's going on, um, okay, I'm going to go uh, down to uh, Chris. Um, in addition to being a re-recording mixer, you're also a sound designer and sound editor. As a sound designer and editor, where do your sound effects come from? As an editor, uh, they usually come from a library or some field recording. Um, as a mixer, it's often coming from the sound effects mixers, <laughs> or I mean editors Editor, and, yeah. and supervisors. Um, how do you work with PFX? So PFX are tricky. Uh, that's typically living on the dialogue side. Um, and do I all, often- Do all the dialogue mixers control the PFX, or do they sometimes give them to you as the effects mixer? It depends. It's usually controlled by the dialogue, and I'll have to make sure that my effects are not flamming with the, the production effects. And sometimes, you know, either one or the other doesn't work as well, so you might, I might mute mine and just let the PFX play, or vice versa. I might ask dialogue to say, hey, you know, I've got really good sound here. Let's go ahead and lose the uh, noisy production effects. Do you ever find yourself, I, I, I've had experience with this when I, I used to uh, operate the PFX as a dialogue mixer. I always give them to the effects mixer now because I would find that the effects mixer after 20 minutes was going, where the hell is... And then they'd look at me and, and, and I'd be sitting there, oh, you mean this? <laughs> um, so I, I eliminated that problem by giving it to the effects mixer. And I think that the blending of the PFX with the hard effects uh, is done better by the effects mixer. Yeah, I would I would prefer it that way. It just doesn't always come that way. It's usually how it comes from editorial, because it's just easier to get. You know, 
we're on networked computers, but it's still harder to move stuff around between systems. It takes just takes time. Sure. Right. Um, how do you approach sound effects that originated in the AAF from the picture editor? <laughs> <laughs> so this is this, this is, is a like, tricky this point is like because garage band because, love. Yeah, you know? film yeah. filmmakers have lived with these these sounds for sometimes months or years, and they, sometimes they love them. Um, I often will carry PFX. I usually like to ask to get them color coded and implemented in their food groups. Uh, how I would, you know, say doors with doors and so on. Um, and they'll also be layered with with uh, sound effects that the sound editor has cut. Um, you know, it's it's it is tricky, but I, I I don't mind playing them if it's if it's decent. It's usually a canned effect that has been in every movie, and that's why we like to layer stuff on top of it. And then if the you know the filmmaker goes, I you know I like that door the way it was before. You know, I can see where it is, and I can say, hey, okay, we got it right here. Let me just turn that up, and maybe turn the other elements down, or. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, this is off the chart here, but I have a question. What tools do you feel you have at your disposal? And I don't mean plugins and stuff like that. I mean, uh, so far as uh, clearing for dialogue, especially in complicated scenes, what tools do you have available for you to keep the, the, the excitement or pressure level up and yet still clear the dialogue? Sure. Um, I will often clear out the center channel and let dialogue live there, or at least clear out most, you know, more of the heavier sounds that might be interfering with dialogue. I mean, there's certain things that kind of need to live with dialogue, like Foley often lives with dialogue because it's kind of an enhancement of the production. Uh, but, you know, wide, you know, wider, bigger effects might clear out of the center some. And there's various things I can do with EQ to carve out some of the frequencies. And uh, But I do like to pan a lot of stuff off the screen as well to, to open it up, basically. Right. Okay, so the question that Bob was going to ask me was, um, <laughs> how are the edited dialogue and music tracks delivered to me? Um, and uh, thankfully, we have uh, people like Anna, who's like an outstanding uh, dialogue editor. Um, and a lot of the choices of which microphones are, are already uh, you know, made in advance before I get them. Um, it, it's not often that I have to ask if there's a better take somewhere, because I know that usually the answer is, no, this is it, buddy. Deal with it. Um, weeks. <laughs> um, quite often, um, I will give, I have a dialogue session template uh, that I have that has all my plugins in it. And I have the list of, you know, dialogue one through 12 or whatever it is. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, FUTS tracks or whatever and uh, ADR tracks. These are all in my template. Um, quite often, I give my template to the dialogue editor um, in advance, and they can either choose to uh, use that template, um, or uh, they build their session how they want to, and then when it comes to me, I, I drop that material into my template. Either way, it gets there. Um, my template is so wide, if you open the show and hide, my template is so wide, it has everything under the sun that you could possibly conceive of. I have foreign dialogue reverb sent to its own bus. I mean, it's like, it's incredible. 
The big thing is, is that when the dialogue editor gives me their session, I can see exactly what the, what they've, how they've cut and what they've labeled, et cetera, et cetera. I can pull it into the, the appropriate tracks of my template and then just hide all the other stuff that I don't need and it becomes the template for that show. As, and this, the question was also, how are the music tracks delivered to me? Um, very simply, uh, it's either nowadays 48 stereo tracks, um, and if I'm really lucky, I get 5.1 stems, which I'm really happy to get because you get a hard center. Um, and then if we're doing Dolby Atmos, I'll quite often get uh, 7.1 uh, music stems, which is great for me, and then I'll go from that point on with using Spanner or whatever to, um, to whip it around the room. Um, and an actual fact, uh, in, in something like Dolby Atmos, and a lot of things are being done in Dolby Atmos now, even for Netflix, has you know that as a deliverable for everything. Um, it's, it's once again like what Chris was saying, is the manipulation of getting out of the way so that we have the timbre and the quality of the production not impinged, impugned, impinged, impinged. Um, it's not been um, mitigated by uh, being encroached by uh, the, the, a lot of the music or the backgrounds, et cetera. And we try to stay out of the way and use the room and make it exciting for the people to feel like they're in the room and, and try not to have things too point sourced to take us out of the focus of the storytelling. I think that's a big problem these days where uh, we have so much available to us that uh, taste has gone out the window and the storytelling has to be prime. It has to be the premier thing. And, and we, we quite often want to use the room to make it feel like we're in the environment, but I don't necessarily uh, think that uh, point source stuff happening that takes us out of the story is necessarily a, a particularly good thing. The next question was, uh, you are the last link in the chain, the last defender of the dialogue. <laughs> Take us through your process for receiving the final edited tracks through the final printmaster. Good God, that's uh, that's like a two-day event. Um, but uh, basically, you know, if if the production is really really beautifully recorded and the production is really beautifully edited, I have a whole shitload less to do. Um, the, the, it's, it, but it's not that often that I get to take good material and make it better. My life, at least fifty percent of the time, is trying to make it work. And for that reason, I have a whole lot of tools that are basically plugins and whatnot that, are, that I can access. Um, but the biggest bone of contention is to try and be consistent with the timbre and the quality of the production. And uh, to that, when I use whatever tools I use, I'm trying to go for um, some sort of consistency, not just simply clarity but some sort of consistency in who that character is and, and that, that chest or that, that, that awful, awful nasal quality of that actress uh, or actor. Um, uh, but I want to be consistent and, and, and clear, and that's where I, what I use my, my various tools for. Now, you know, everybody has their own choices of what those things are, but the bottom line is, is the idea that you're not, you're, you're storytelling, helping the, the the uh, directors tell a story and, and not take people out of the film to make sure that the characters are, are playing their part. Um, kind of like that. 
Okay, and I think that was yeah. That says basically bring it home. So um, <laughs> okay, it's three o'clock, but I I'd like to see if there's um, a few questions. Uh, anybody other than Marty Humphreys <laughs> is welcome to ask any questions. No, no, there's a young lady. Okay, Marty, go ahead. I have a quick question. Okay. Okay, you mix for dailies, and it was very important. Now these days, there's companies like Cedar who are now trying to get people to process dialogue, to mix for dailies, so that people who don't understand the process of what you guys just described, of what we as dialogue re-recording mixers, dialogue editors, yeah, yeah, yes, dialogue, I mean, production processing with production mixers. How much pressure is there on you to go ahead now and put noise reduction in your chain because somebody's un unsecure on the fact that what you're delivering is going to be fine by the time it gets to Gary? Uh, there's, I have not felt any pressure to do that. None on my end either. No. Thank God. And I, <laughs> I understand it though, we've actually been talking about it and I, and I do understand you know, the need of it, I, th I think that a lot of it comes from the knowledge that we'll know if something is going to be good enough or not, you know, that will pass well, through. I, I and when you of, will then go through and pull it out later. Part, is, part of Marty's concern is that there have been production mixers that have been let go because of the sound of the dailies. And they're, they're being defensive by wanting to either roll off too much bottom end or whatever um, to, to, to sort of do some processing so it sounds better in the dailies. Right. Well, I EQ all the time, and I don't sure. know how other people feel about it, but I EQ for my mix and for the ISOs. I do what you were talking about, getting an actor's voice in your head, whether they're in a bathroom, a car, outside, or whatever, and whatever microphone you you plan to use to to make that sound the same, you know, that's the thing, and, and that requires a lot of EQ. You know, so if a microphone is buried under a couple pieces of clothes, you know, you have to do pop you, it out. When you EQ, just a real quick question, but do you, when you EQ, do you pull rather than push? Pull. Yes. Almost Does everybody pull. know what that I mean by that? In other words, pull out the masking frequencies and letting the natural stuff appear as opposed to pushing some brightness or whatever that actually ends up is being like an amplifier and it hurts the ears. Yeah, I mean, you'll have to add in some high end when they're, you know, when they're covered. I mean, there's no other way around it. We need some brightness in those clothing rustles. <laughs> yeah. I think yes. on, on films, on films you have more time and you can really dial it in. I, I know in the films that I have toyed with that, you know, doing EQ, very light. Mm -hmm. But on television, we don't really have time for it. So we go flat. You do. 100% flat and uh, let the microphone choice. See, but then yeah. you're more up to the mercy of not of being judged, you know, poorly because you didn't, you know, pull out the best sound for that. But on TV, watching dailies, is watching eight hours of dailies every night, nobody does it. Right. You know, <laughs> it, it happens months down the line. Right. Is that yeah. good? Yeah. We had a question back here uh, beside Carol. So first of all, thank you CAS for putting an assistant sound editor on the panel. I really appreciate that because I didn't know that was a thing until a year ago and ended up doing it to learn sound as an editorial aspect. Um, so this question is kind of for Matt. Actually, it's completely for Matt. Um, when you're creating your ISOs, it's sort of a two-part question. You're using a program like Eddie Load? Yes, I am. Eddie Load, Titan. 
Uh, Bernie, okay. <laughs> there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. So I have a really kind of specific question to that, which is why I'm glad you're on this panel. An issue I had a lot transitioning my work to my dialogue editor was I had to spend significant numbers of hours doing the sync issue because it was never, it didn't matter if it was take A, B, A, C. The first take A was off by four frames. The second take A was plus four frames instead of minus four frames off. Is that something with the Avid workflow, or have you noticed that a lot, and is there a workaround for that to get it better to my dialogue editors? Yeah, Edilode and, and, and Titan's Fixed Sync feature are pretty good about just matching waveforms. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it'll uh, the initial conforming of the dialogue is really sourcing from your EDLs, from your source time code, and, and pulling, extracting the data from that. You say, here's my dialogue library, here's thousands of files, and here's all their source timestamps. And uh, the Edilode and the Titan uh, Fixed Sync have the ability to basically say, all right, you've gotten me to the five-yard line. I'll get you into the end zone. Uh, and it'll adjust those things. And yes, you still have to go through and make sure everything is perfect because we're Sisyphus. You know, dialogue is just pushing the rock to the top, and then it rolls down. <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's why they pay us. Right. So is production, by the way. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we have to uh, wrap this up. I want to uh, thank everybody, uh, first of all. And secondly, if you're going to isotope anything, do it very lightly. Yes. I can always, do another, I can always do another pass. Yeah. All right. Hey, thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. Thank you very much.